Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. We all have tendencies in our relationships, and particularly in our important ones. Maybe we're very self-assured, or trust quickly, or need a lot of space between ourselves and other people. Maybe we have more destructive tendencies, or find ourselves in cycles where the trajectory of all of our important relationships tends to look the same. Today we're continuing our series on Who Am I? by taking a look at where those tendencies come from, and how we can work inside ourselves to relate to them and others more effectively. To help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How you doing? I'm good, and I'm happy to say from the get-go that I have very good relationship paradigms with you, Forrest. Oh, well, that was very sweet. I feel very <laughs> much the same way. So to frame the conversation here a little bit, my understanding is that it's pretty widely observed by people in you know, various therapeutic traditions, therapy in general, that people have a tendency to get into different kinds of repetitive patterns in relationships. Right. Yeah. Perhaps based on their early experiences with parents or loved ones, that's kind of a leading theory of developmental psychology. Sometimes these repetitions are great, and sometimes they're problematic. Likewise, sometimes they're sort of general and thematic, while other times they can be very sort of explicit and specific. For instance, in the case of somebody who grows up with a parent who maybe has a substance abuse issue, and then later in life, they find themselves gravitating toward people who have a similar kind of issue. Maybe even going on to marrying somebody who has some issues there. To start with, to kind of frame, is what I'm saying here more or less (laughs) accurate? (laughs) Yeah, in a lot, a lot of ways. So we're the learning ape, right? Homo sapiens, in effect. And we learn about important things. And for a child, the most important things to learn about are relationships. Mm. Immediate relationships with your family, your siblings, and your peers, other kids. So I want to really call out, and I'm sure we'll talk about, the learning that happens with our friends or enemies as a kid going through school. Mm -hmm. And there's actually some research that shows that, especially by the time someone's Midway through elementary school, certainly by junior high, the peer group, for better or worse, has more influence over how we feel about ourselves and who we become, on average, than parents do. And that certainly was my experience as a parent, that you realize that your influence under reasonable normal conditions tends to wane as your kids (laughs) learn how to ride a bike and then beyond. So, all that said, I want to just kind of give a concrete example for this material from a lot where it originated. So therapists, going all the way back to Sigmund Freud, began to notice that their adult clients who could function perfectly well, typically in many ordinary settings, including their work environments, were starting to treat the therapist like their own mother or father. Mm, mm -hmm. And that begat the notion of transference, the idea of transferring this learning, which we're designed to acquire and we need to acquire in childhood, nothing pathological about it inherently. And then we're designed to generalize the learning we acquired in specific situations to other members of the class or to life in general. In other words, the learning we acquire with our father, let's say, we then transfer to men, especially men who are authority figures. Very straightforward. Learning we acquire with our mother, we transfer to other women, and so forth. And so the 
analysts then and then therapists more generally began noticing really weird things that the client would sometimes do things that were obviously not good for the client, but would influence the therapist into occupying the role in the social script mm, mm-hmm. of what an authority figure father should be like or, or an authority figure mother should be like. And in those scripts then, the client was then able to act like the child or the child they wanted to be or was able to try to get from the therapist what they didn't get from their mother or mm-hmm. father or more generally their peers. So there was some pre-existing paradigm of relationship that was created in this individual, possibly from a young age. It's kind yeah. of hard to say, but yeah. as best as we can guess from a pretty young age. Yeah. And that paradigm kind of kept going into adulthood with different individuals filling the pre-described roles inside of it. Yeah, and to make it kind of real for people listening right now, they might mm-hmm. ask themselves, huh, what did I learn about people in my family? Mm-hmm. What did I learn about yeah. couples? That's a great question. To the extent my parents stayed together by observing them. What did I learn about men, women, to the extent these categories mean something? If I had siblings, if I were older or younger, what did I learn about being the older one or the younger one or the one who is more knowledgeable or less knowledgeable in different situations? What did I learn then? And also with my peers, did I learn that the safest thing was to be invisible? Did I learn that if you sort of stood out, you got hammered down? Did I learn that it was okay to make mistakes in front of other people and it wouldn't be too bad afterward? Or did I learn that you never, ever, ever dare to make a mistake in front of other people because you'll be humiliated as a result? Mm -hmm. What are the learnings I acquired from my childhood that now I'm transferring into my adult life in ways, let's say, that are not necessarily really good? Right. Yeah, they might be based on flawed learning or learning that only existed at that time with that group of people. But we create the structure and what we know may be unpleasant, but what we don't know might be terrifying. And I think that there's this way in which there's that replication of sort of known patterns, Mm -hmm. even when those known patterns are are actually on a day-to-day level pretty unpleasant for people. Yeah. For myself, I was comfortable with both my parents and and my siblings. Mm -hmm. And individually, there were kids in my neighborhood that were my friends, and that was okay. But in school, because I was really young and I was also shy, the group was scary. Mm -hmm. And so I noticed that for myself, when I'm one-to-one with people, even people I don't know, just I'm meeting someone for the first time, I feel really quite comfortable. But if I'm entering a group that I don't know, And especially if it's an established group, I can really feel these old feelings. (laughs) They go back to when I was like 11 years old. That was a long time ago. Um, (laughs) And uh, they just sort of overtake one. So one of the clues here too is when you feel like you're being haunted or occupied by old patterns that somehow seem not called for in the situation you're in currently. One of the examples of that is for people who are parents themselves when they start having young children. And 
if you've gone through this, you'll know what I'm talking about, where just the smells, like the smells of a young child Mm. or the feeling of flannel on your cheek or the furniture of a crib or the kind of sounds that young children make in a funny kind of way can stir up that material Mm, inside mm -hmm. you from when you were a year old. Mm -hmm. And there's a really lovely title of a famous paper written about this by Selma Freiberg called Ghosts in the Nursery. The nursery being the place where the little kid is in your own home. The ghosts there for the parent are from your own past, Mm -hmm. but they're alive and operative there with your own kid. They get Mm -hmm. stirred up again. One of the big paradigms in psychology that kind of references some of this material is attachment theory. We did an episode previously that I've referenced on a number of previous episodes on secure and insecure attachment because I think it's just one of the better ones that we've done. And Mm -hmm. it's really just such a powerful topic. And one of the things that we touched on there, just to kind of expand on what you're saying here about the experience of the new parent with an infant or a young child, which obviously is not one that I've had, and therefore my empathy here can only extend so far, but I'll do my best. Could you like hurry up and get working on it? I'll work on that, I'll work on that. Okay, good. But uh, I'm I'm sure that my mother would love that. Um, (laughs) Your father too. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, so one of the things that we touched on in that episode was how if you were somebody who had an insecure form of relationship inside of your family unit, one of the ways that you can move toward more securely attaching with others is actually by being somebody that others attach securely to. So what you see a lot, I think, with people who came from problematic homes when they Mm -hmm. have their own child, a lot of the way that they find healing from that is in becoming the kind of parent that they wish that they had had. Mm -hmm. And by becoming somebody that that child can then attach more securely to. Yeah, I think that's really true. And so... The fact that we are so affected by social learning in childhood Mm -hmm. and throughout our lifespan, the fact that we're so affected by that and the fact that we tend to form that social learning in what are called frames that are like little mini movies that then get sort of summarized and prototyped inside the brain and they form these basic scripts of different kinds of relationships. So. We form social knowledge typically in which there is a protagonist, oneself, and then there's a world. And terminology that developed for that originally in psychoanalysis and then has kind of spread more widely is the idea of object relations. The quote-unquote object, which is a weird term, but it means it could be anything. Mm -hmm. So it could be a group of people. It could be a category like police officers, traffic cops. It could be part of something, like to an infant, the breast, so-called. And then typically, depending on the type of object and the sense of self, and the two tend to go together. So around authority figures, those objects, the sense of self is fill-in-the-blank. Combative, compliant, Mm. distancing, clinging to the power so it won't hurt you obsequious or really comfortable and autonomous and relaxed. So you see, they go together. And I'll say a couple things here. One, when you're around certain kinds of objects that fit certain roles in your script-like social learning from your history, 
Well, then a certain kind of self or a sense of yourself or Mm. self-presentation or persona kind of matches it. Mm -hmm. And flip the other way, when you feel like a certain kind of self, like if you feel small and weak, maybe you then tend to look for certain kinds of others who will fit that script for you. If, on the other hand, you feel bossy and domineering, then you would tend to look for other kinds of people to fill those roles for you. And one of the implications of all this is that a lot of this social learning or the formation of paradigms, models of relationship is unconscious. It lurks in the Mm, background. mm -hmm. And yet it seems somehow ordained like, oh, That's, of course, how we're supposed to operate with other people. It's kind of a given. Like, if you're like that, I need to be like this. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for example, I know people who, um, let's say, go in to see physicians for their medical issues, whatnot, and the physician is an authority figure, and you just think of the iconic nature of the physician in our culture. It's very archetypal, the healer, the one who knows, very potent, including in modern technical times. and. I know a lot of people who are very assertive under normal conditions and strong-willed and autonomous. They walk into that doctor's office, it's like they're a six-year-old back at the pediatrician. So it's normal to have these scripts. One thing that's really useful to do is to realize as well that these, the self and the object get internalized inside your own mind. So that other who is outside you, that kind of bullying critical kid when you were in sixth grade, say, now lives on inside you, inside your own mind. So this is a part of you, Mm, a kind of bullying mm -hmm. critical part Mm -hmm. that then you direct toward yourself. Yeah, and it just kind of reinforces that inner critic that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even sometimes, you imagine a situation where you grow up, let's say, with that bullying kid who you then internalize And then you identify with that thing you've internalized because it's powerful. It Mm. makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you find yourself treating other people like that bullying kid treated you. Yeah, Maybe in subtler ways, cloaked in your corporate job with a certain kind of language or a certain kind of role or something like that. Because there's that strong emotional relationship with the object. Yeah. You know, the object comes not just as a thing, but as a feeling. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. exactly right. I find this territory incredibly useful. Scripts, Mm -hmm. what are the scripts? What's the script I'm in? What role am I writing you into? What role am I allowing others to write me into out of their scripts? When is it useful to just play a role and kind of flow along with the nature of it? I think about the encounter with, you know, traffic cop who pulls you over for a Mm -hmm. rolling stop or a, a broken brake light. And you just want to kind of go with the program, you know, sure, presuming yeah. it's a normal thing. You're not being mis- mistreated, obviously. Other times, though, it's really useful to just kind of observe what other people are trying to slot you into and keep stepping out of that script. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. And to generalize this a little bit, what we're really kind of talking about here fundamentally is about reclaiming our agency. That's that's really what you're talking about, is you're talking yeah. about not just allowing the pre-programming that we've developed from mm-hmm. childhood about the way that certain kinds of relationships are quote-unquote supposed to look, 
yeah. to dictate our behavior. Yeah. And about being conscious about our choices so that we're making choices because we want to be making them, mm. not because they're sort of what some part of our buried brain believes we should be doing at any given moment. Yeah. And I think that's a really important detail here, which is about this is about reclaiming our own autonomy fundamentally. And that's yeah. why it's really interesting territory. And why it's good to be kind of conscious of when we start to fall into these patterns of relationship with other people. Yeah. One idea that I have found really useful comes from a man named Kohad. He was a psychoanalytic theoretician. Mm. And he came up with the notion of what he called self-objects. In other words, especially for people who grow up in ways in which through neglect or mistreatment... There's a fragile sense of self, maybe an incomplete sense of self. So to feel whole as a being, they fill in their overall sense of self with other people. And there's a place for that when there's an infant who maintains a sense of well-being or equilibrium as a psyche, in effect by really relying on, let's say, a nurturing parent to sort of, in a somewhat enmeshed and fused way, in a healthy way, the first year of life, let's say, to help that infant feel complete and to feel regulated, feel soothed, feel calmed, and so forth. In healthy development, uh, that experience of the nurturing other is internalized so that gradually the infant and then child can differentiate from the caregiver in a healthy kind of way, developing autonomy. If that doesn't go well, you can have situations for adults then who need to find someone to fuse with or become enmeshed with in some ways to somehow establish a kind of stability or coherence as a self, as a being. And that's problematic. And so it's interesting to see to what extent do you do that yourself, let's say, rather than being autonomous and reasonably differentiated? To what extent do you feel like you need to merge with another person or merge with a kind of group to somehow be okay and establish a basic okayness that's not individuated? Mm. It's not independent. Mm-hmm. Flip the other way. Can you recognize when sometimes you're with people often people who are kind of clinging, Mm. who are trying to draw you into that role. And maybe their clinging has a kind of reproach involved with it. It's a clinging complaint. And so it's confusing if you're on the receiving end of that. It's like they both are pushing me away, but they're trying to draw me in. But when I come in, there's always something wrong. What's going on here? That other person is in a way kind of using you to try to make you be a self-object to stabilize some sense of okayness that was rooted in young childhood, which then also makes the point that often these patterns are really uncomfortable for the person who's doing them. Mm, mm-hmm. They don't like doing them often, or they're maladaptive, or obviously it's surprised. Like going back to the well into the same, frankly, abusive relationship time and time again. Why do we return to there? And I'm not blaming the victim here. I'm just trying to actually support the victim by saying, as you said earlier, Forrest, it's important to reclaim agency, Mm -hmm. to realize if I'm doing that myself, if I'm going back into situations repetitively that are not good for me, 
what kind of script am I trying to enact or what kind of quest am I trying to fulfill? Mm -hmm. To what extent am I trying to get blood from that stone that I never got it from when I was a kid? Mm. So to fulfill the quest, I've got to pick people that were like the people who mistreated me or didn't come through for me when I was young. It's really poignant, isn't it? You know, if we're going to complete the quest to get blood from the stone, we've got to then be in relationship with a lot of stones. To say some of this back to you, Mm. because I would like to kind of move from the theoretical into the more practical here. With most of what we're talking about with object relations, we're talking about establishing a pattern of behavior with some kind of external object, which could be an authority figure. It could be a romantic partner. It could be somebody who, as you described earlier, is a little bit more clingy or a little bit dependent on us. How do we object relate, so to speak, with the things that are dependent on us rather than the things that we are dependent on, and so on. And then we kind of enact those patterns as we move through our life, largely subconsciously. So to get into some of the kind of how-to here, you've mentioned this being a pretty subconscious process a couple of times here. And certainly, I don't have perfect self-knowledge. I'm not totally aware of when I kind of drop into a script with somebody else. So what can we do as people to be kind of more aware of when we might be enacting some of those potentially damaging patterns? That is, of course, the money question. That's a great practical question. And numerous things come to mind, but I'll, I'll just summarize probably a, a couple. One is to really, really kind of think about this idea of the movie or the story. In other words, what's the fundamental story that underlies the different relationships you have? In other words, there's, you know, it's said sometimes that there are only like seven real storylines or like sitcoms. They, they vary the details. Is it located here? What's happening there? But the basic story is the same. And you might want to ask yourself, am I maintaining the same fundamental storyline Situation after situation after situation in my key relationships. That's a, that's a fair question. And is that storyline really working for me or would it be good to break out of it? Can I allow myself to have different roles? That's that. Another one is to think about people in your life who seem to operate in relationships differently than you do and it goes well for them. Mm. And imagine, wow, what would it be like for me to play more of that role or be more that way in ways that I could find authentic within me. It could be a stretch in the beginning, but it it could be authentic. Or on the other hand, if you just think to yourself, oh, no, I couldn't possibly be that way. Well, why not? That's right there is a clue that maybe you're trapped in an old movie from your childhood. And then the last thing is that to really ask yourself if you're drawn into situations again and again, but seemingly coincidentally, And yet by the third or 13th times this happened, you start realizing that the common factor in all those situations is you. Are you drawn into situations where other people mistreat you or let you down? And if you look closely at it, were there clues going in that you could have read if you weren't carried along by what Freud called the repetition compulsion Mm. to reenact the past again and again and again? And I think it's really important to be thoughtful about being in situations where you just don't get your needs met Mm. or jobs, let's say, or careers 
or living situations with certain kinds of roommates or what do you what do you put up with that you shouldn't put up with or what do you find yourself being drawn to that you know just is really not good for you i think that's a great place to start in terms of awareness so that's kind of the recognizing component of the question in order to change a habit of any kind we yeah. have to recognize huh we should probably change that habit you yeah. know if somebody doesn't believe that they should stop biting their nails, they're never going to stop biting their nails. Right. Once we've moved through recognition mm-hmm. and we're going, huh, this is a pattern that I have and it's causing me some problems in my life, what are some of the things that we can do to start breaking out of that cycle of behavior and establishing a new paradigm? How do we change, right? That's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One is to... Listen to the 1% of you who knows what you really ought to do. And based on listening to that 1% of yourself that is truly wise, commit to certain situations that for the other 99% of you are like fingernails on a chalkboard. Mm, mm -hmm. And yet, in this, obviously, you should choose these commitments wisely. They're not over the top, but still a stretch for you. For example, When I was in college and really trying to work through my own frozenness around groups and terrible fear of being open and revealed and emotional and uncontrolled in those kind of settings, because when I was that way or saw people being that way when I was a kid in school, it's like, oh, that was a nightmare. So I would sign up for encounter groups. 1% 1% of me knew, whoa, this is really good for me, bare my soul. 99% of me thought I was insane. I didn't want to do it, but I was committed. Same thing, right? Maybe write something and put it out there. Maybe stick your neck out with someone and tell them how much you care about them. No strings attached, but you really do care about them. And then put yourself into a growth opportunity as a result. That's one way to stretch some of these scripts. Another way, and a really important way, is to think about what would have been so good to have happened back then. Mm-hmm. It's a really haunting question. What would have made all the difference in the world back then? In other words, if you had had a mentor of a certain kind going through school, would that have made a lot of difference? If your parents had named possibilities to you that they themselves were just not aware of, so of course they couldn't name them. But if they had been named, it would have opened so many doors for you. You would have dreamed a lot bigger dreams, for example. Or maybe it would be just so great to, way back then, have been in a relationship with a nurturing person Mm. who was not bossy and domineering and did not use nurturance as a kind of Trojan horse to get you to crack open the gates to your castle. And then once they got inside based on the nurturance, they would overrun you and take over and plunder you. Mm. So then it really helps to look for that kind of person. And maybe, as you were saying earlier, you you start that looking because you kind of understand it from the outside in, top down. But when you do form a relationship with that kind of person, seek out that kind of boss or develop that kind of friendship or frankly choose that kind of life partner, when you are with that kind of person and they're not being like your dad or not being like your mom or not being like the older kids at school, really, really take it in. And to help yourself develop new kinds of scripts in your mind with new kinds of 
you know, fellow actors on the stage. And that is a really powerful thing too. I think back on my own journey, I'll, I'll spare some of the gorier of the details, but I formed relationships with women, I think, that in some ways were a repetition compulsion of my mom, mm. who was wonderful while also being really quite critical and controlling. And I worked through some of my issues there by realizing over time that I needed to stand up against these girlfriends or partners I was having and push back against them. And then over time, seek out a different kind of person who became your own mother. And that has been a really useful thing for me. So anyway, that's the other way I would put it, to think about who would be really good in your life, who would make a real difference, make a different movie. Yeah, I think those are great starting points in a really deep and thorny and kind of complicated and twisted topic, which is, as you were saying, when you started answering the fundamentals of like, how do we actually change, practically speaking, which... You know, in many ways, you could say is what we've been exploring for the last year and a half. So we're certainly not going to be covering it entirely in one episode. To throw a few more things out there, kind of casually, because I'm not a psychologist and I want to be ginger with the advice that I'm offering here. One thing that I have noticed in talking through this with other people sometimes is to avoid the assumption that good changes feel good. Hmm. Here's what I mean. Obviously, you don't want to take that statement too far. Yeah. I like biting my nails. Yeah. Biting my nails feels good to me most of the time. I know objectively that I should bite my nails less, but not biting my nails feels kind of crappy. Yep. Just because I'm making a good change Mm. doesn't mean that it feels good. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, what happens is we have this underlying narrative of, oh, I'm making all of these positive changes in my life. Therefore, I will immediately start to feel better. And I think that's somewhere between nine times out of 10 and 99 times out of 100. That's just not true. The first couple of days that you go to the gym, you're going to feel bad. That's just the way it's going to be. You're going to feel crappy. You are not going to feel energized. You are not going to feel better about yourself. You're not going to feel any of the things that people talk about you feeling when you start going to the gym. I'm telling you now that is mostly a lie. You are going to feel weak. You are going to feel sore. You're going to have all this recrimination inside of your mind. Why didn't I start this sooner? I'm just I'm just this weak slob and I can't commit to anything and blah, 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 blah. You just got to deal with that for at least a week, if not a month. That's part of the process of change. It's going to feel kind of crappy for a little while. And part of committing to changing that internal script is about just kind of being okay with that and about kind of being okay with things being uncomfortable for a minute and being okay with the feeling of loss you have around the things that maybe you have to give up in order to break out of some of those really problematic narratives. So that's sort of the first thing that I would offer is that just because something doesn't feel great in the moment doesn't mean that it's not good. Mm. And to try to separate that connection in the mind as much as reasonably possible. So that's kind of the first idea that I would offer. The second thing that I would offer is that many of these patterns are very challenging to recognize and break out of on our own. And I mean, just to put out the obvious there, podcasts like this are great. Internal work is great. Reading resources online is great. Talking to friends is great. Seeing a professional sometimes is really wonderful. And I would just toss it out there for some of these topics. So I would would 
almost always be an advocate for that, assuming, of course, that the resources in your life exist to do that. And in some people's lives, they don't. And that's why, you know, this podcast is free. And mm. there are many other wonderful resources out there that are offered totally freely. That's great, Forrest, all the way around. Yeah, well, really. thank you. I mean, I think that that's a pretty round treatment of the topic, or at least as round as we're going to be in about half an hour or so. And I think that it's as good a place as any to close today's episode. So today we talked about how we can break out of problematic cycles of behavior in our relationships. The two big kind of psychological theories that we named in the course of today's episode were attachment theory and object relations. We gave both of them kind of a cursory treatment. Neither of us are what I would describe as a specialist in these territories. So all advice is offered you know, very gingerly and uh, carefully in nature. But to summarize, most of us establish patterns of behavior, patterns of relating from a pretty young age. And then as we move forward in life, it is very common for us to recycle these scripts in our relationships, falling into comfortable and pre-established roles of various kinds. These roles carry baggage with them. That can be really problematic for us, but it can be even more uncomfortable in the short term to attempt to break out of them. So we constantly go back to this recycling of our experiences as we move forward into life, repeating patterns of behavior that might be deeply problematic for us. We spend some time talking about how to recognize when this process is going on, which admittedly is a very challenging thing to do because most of the things that are happening are happening beneath the surface. They're happening subconsciously, effectively. But we can do some work to try to identify where we might have a problematic pattern. From there, it's about establishing a process of behavior change, which, as we both said, is a very challenging thing to do and is more or less what we've been exploring over the past year and a half on this podcast. The two pieces of advice that were given initially were, first, to try to push yourself out of your pre-established script. So doing something that 1% of you knows would be really great for you, but 99% of you has got a lot of nervousness around. Of course, you want to be intelligent about choosing things like this, not going too crazy, but basically trying to break out of your established paradigms by making choices that push your boundaries in a variety of ways. The second one is trying to find kind of better objects externally. Imagining back to a time previously in your life that was problematic and going, wow, what would have been great then? And then trying to find something currently that can help fill that role. Fill, as we've used the phrase in the past, that kind of hole in the heart. The advice that I gave, again, kind of very cautiously, is to sort of free yourself from the idea that a positive change is immediately going to feel good in your yeah, life. Often there's an adaptation period where, guess what, feels pretty problematic for a while. But in the long term, if you can keep a cool head about it, you might be able to acknowledge that it's ultimately going to pay some really good dividends for you. Can I interject something? Oh, absolutely. Quotation from Ajahn Chah, the teacher mm-hmm. of teachers, no longer alive, great adept, a meditation master in Thailand. He said, basically, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that you're talking about here, Forrest, that leads to less suffering, mm-hmm. right? And that's the kind you're really talking about. The discomfort that over time helps you become actually more comfortable. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on. So if you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of it 
on the platform of your choice. Uh, it really helps us out and it's a great way to help us reach some new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening.